I'm currently stood outside the most expensive townhouse in London, just by Regent's Park. It's bought for £120 million by the Russian billionaire Andrei Goncharenko, and it's just one of a multitude of flats, mansions, and basically full palaces in London owned by the Russian oligarchy or elite. This is just a stone's throw from where I was born and grew up, which is fitting really as over my life I've seen London slowly hollowed out by billionaires and developers, and I've been completely priced out of ever buying anywhere. Uh, That is, unless I obtain millions of stocks on denationalised oil companies. This is, therefore, the episode I'm most excited about. We'll be looking at the money that Western financial centres, and in particular London, has managed to make and hide for Russian oligarchs, how the war, the sanctions and scrutiny on them has changed this relationship and whether nearly enough is being done to clean up the city and whether there's any hope of any actual reflection and reformation of the financial practices here in the West. This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast. And I'm Ned Sedgwick. This week we're having another panel discussion we're joined by the writer and journalist Oliver Bullow and Thomas Main, who's a visiting fellow of the Russian Eurasia programme here at Chatham House. They're two of the world experts on Russia and the former Soviet Union's kleptocracies and Britain's place within the global flow of illicit finance. I really want to get a bottom of how far the roots of this corruption go. So I started by asking Oliver if there's any way of working out how much illicit Russian money there is in Britain. That's an impossible question to answer because, I mean, to be honest, it, it, it's it's not even a, a question that can be answered because money has been here for a sufficiently long time. Money has come through other jurisdictions. Uh, money has been owned by Russians and then reinvested and then respent. So, you know, how much money is there? We have no idea. And, and I'm suspicious of any attempt to answer the question. We know that approximately a trillion US dollars has left Russia in capital flight under Vladimir Putin. Um, I think it's reasonable to estimate that a significant proportion of that has ended up in the UK. Um, How much exactly uh, is frankly anyone's guess, but definitely would be talking about uh, a a figure in the hundreds of billions of pounds. Tom, do you mind giving a brief overview then of of, with this capital flight, with this money leaving leaving Russia, how does this benefit uh, the Russian in inverted commas, kleptocracy. How does this actually benefit those in Russia making the decisions and storing beyond the obvious they can buy yachts, they can buy houses here? Well, nothing's for free in Russia. And if you're uh, an oligarch who's who's, who's made billions, um, there's a quid pro quo going on. Uh, So you're allowed to use a certain amount of, of, of that money for as you say yachts and and luxury holidays um but you also have to do the 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 kremlin's bidding and that might be uh you know funding a a a pro-kremlin think tank in in europe it might be uh funding a a political campaign of a a pro-russian candidate in 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 europe uh it might be uh funding directly to the war effort war war effort or uh funding groups like the 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 wagner group uh we, we know that the the owner of the the controller of the Wagner Group uh, is a is Putin's uh, chef uh, Evgeny Prigozhin. Uh, he made his money uh, by getting legally uh, contracts from the Russian government, uh, supplying food to to schools and, and and the military. So there is a kind of a 
a dynamic there where uh, you're allowed to to use the money, but when the question comes in, you, you have to do what uh, the, the Kremlin asks. So I kind of put this question to both of you. Do you think this was, and I'll start by asking Tom this, do you think this was built from from strategy or necessity? Do you think letting oligarchs do what you've just described of, of buying yachts and then also investing, do you think that was built from deciding that the Western financial institutions were a weak spot in democracy? Well, I think I think there's also a story here about how Russia has changed from the 90s to, to more recent times. And certainly there's been a reining in of, 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 of the oligarchs. So, so I think their power is certainly less than it used to be in the, uh, in the 1990s. Um, but I think what, what, you know, so in, in some ways, the, you know, the, 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 the true oligarchs are the, uh, the, the people in the, in the Kremlin, they, they, they control everything. They control the money flows. I, I think the, the, the oligarchs in the, in the 90s, I think were looking to move their money out of Russia just because it was, it was safer. And, and there was a, a coteries, a, a coterie of enablers, uh, in, in the West that would, that would help them to, uh, to do that. And once the money's here, obviously it can be used more easily. For the, for the kind of nefarious purposes we've been, been talking about. To be honest, I'm quite suspicious of any suggestion that Putin is a strategic genius. Um, the idea that he's been planning this, sort of planting financial sleep, sleeper cells over the last 22 years to undermine the West from within. I mean, it, it, it's very much a kind of Western trope about Russia that has existed for 200 years, that, that the Russians are somehow uniquely strategically gifted um, and have this ability to outthink us, you know, on on a long term basis. If you just look at the results of Putin's actions, which have left him in a considerably weaker strategic position than he inherited when he first became president, I think it, it's pretty clear that though he's quite a good tactician, he's a pretty terrible strategist. I think he just makes decisions as he goes along. Um, he has a very small group of very close friends. They're very greedy, and they have the opportunity to essentially steal anything that they want you know, so they do, and he lets them get away with it in, in return for building him palaces and occasionally building him football stadiums or or building him an army. You know, what what do you do if you've got a giant fortune that you count with nine zeros in it? Um, then, well, you want to be a Kardashian, right? You spend it on the bling, and you don't get bling in Russia. You know, if you've got that much money, you need to spend it in the south of France or London or, or New York. That's where money gets spent. So I, I don't think there's a strategy here you know, Putin started where he started with a highly unequal, very corrupt political system. And he and he bent it to his will to create something that served him better than it, you know, than, than what he inherited did. But but yeah, I don't think there's any particular strategy here. How much of a difference do you think this money makes on the British economy? Do you think that it's it's such a substantial sum of money that if we were to take a hard line on these kleptocrats earlier? it really would have been an issue. And it, have we seen any results since the sanctions have come in? Have we seen anything that we can tie to that sanctions that has, has damaged our, our growth for the rest of the country, not just the, the bankers making these deals? Yeah, I mean, as I'm reluctant to ascribe too much strategic now to Putin, I'm pretty reluctant to ascribe too much strategic now to Boris Johnson. I, I don't think he tried to suppress the Russia report because he was worried about the impact on the British economy. I think he tried to suppress it because he probably read an article in the Daily Telegraph that suggested the Russia report was trying to delegitimize Brexit and, and, and thought no more about it. More broadly, I, I don't think that the Russian wealth, um, in particular, the Russian oligarchic wealth, is of 
huge strategic significance to the British economy. Um, there's a lot of it, but it, it's nothing compared to the size of, of of the UK economy. I mean, how much financial wealth has been frozen by all Western countries under the sanctions is about, I think, the latest figure, I think something like 30 billion US dollars. You know, that, you know, it's a lot of money, but it's nothing compared to the scale of the British economy. Um, I think more, probably more alarming to policymakers uh, historically is that if you start putting limits on the movement of Russian kleptocratic wealth into the UK, it's very difficult to dissect it out and simultaneously, you know, stop Russian wealth coming here, but simultaneously allow Kazakh, Azeri, Ukrainian, Bahraini, Emirati, Saudi, Chinese, Venezuelan, Angolan wealth to come here. You end up with a situation whereby you 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 block all the money. And then that is a problem because if you look at the the kleptocratic wealth in total from all around the world, you know, not just the Russian, but all of it, then that is a lot of money. And that does make a big difference to, um, you know, the fortunes of particular bits of the city of London, the fortunes of particular bits of the real estate market. And, you know, and you just have to look at, you know, who's in the cabinet to realise that, that, you know, the interests of the financial services industry are quite well represented. Um, and, they, you know, they, they're, they're very successful lobbyists as well in the Treasury and the Business Department. So, you know, I think there is a concern um, if, if we over-regulate the city, if we put, you know, inverted commas, onerous regulations on our uh, corporate registry, that we will end up driving this money away and that that could be harmful for the British economy. But in, to, to answer to your question, have we seen any impact uh, on the British economy from sanctions? I think it's too early to say in the background of the aftermath of COVID, coupled together with the cost of living crisis and the cost of energy crisis, I, I think at the moment it's too early to say. Tom, on the flip side of that, um, has has the, the sanctions, has the, the limit on the Russian oligarchy wealth had any impact within Russia that can be seen at the moment? Well, I'm sure... Abramovich is 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 not happy. He no longer has a, a football club and 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 can't visit, uh, uh, you know, his his twenty or so houses he, he he has here. So I think on a personal level, it would have had a great effect to a uh, on a small number of of, of oligarchs. Uh, I think there is going to be obviously an economic impact. Um, there's going to be an economic impact of of launching a, a, a an illegal and, and ludicrous um, war, um, but we don't know the full extent yet. How much is the the, the, the Russian economy ring fenced? Uh, how has it managed to um, counteract sanctions by setting up new uh, deals with various African countries, with China, you know, diverting the money money flows? Um, we, we we don't we don't fully know yet, um, but even if it has just affected a small number of, of, of oligarchs the, the most, I think that's something that has been long overdue for, for too long. We've, we have turned a blind eye to this, this corrupt and, and dubious capital flowing into, into London. We've seen these kind of unprecedented sanctions, in, but what are the loopholes around them? Uh, my, I'm not an economist. My understanding of the global financial system must be that it must be pretty complicated if people are so get so rich from seemingly just, you know, being there. Um, so surely there are loopholes. Uh, and, and what are the obvious ones that you've seen? If there are any, maybe maybe it is actually incredibly successful, but are there any loopholes we're seeing? Well, we, 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 we saw um, straight off the bat, you know, people like Usman of uh, changing the ownership of their property, you know, moving it into various trusts or arrangements not covered by, by, by uh, sanctions. 
And there's obviously at the moment you can you can own a, a property in the in the UK, and no one knows you own it because you can hide it with a with an offshore company. A lot of research has been done on on the oligarchs and and and, and what properties uh, they own. But um, you know, if you are a, an anonymous owner of a property, uh, you can s- sell that. Uh, using the right uh, um, enablers um, and, and and evade um, uh, detection. Uh, I think, generally speaking, the vast majority of, of law firms and solicitors will not be uh, uh, dealing with with, with anything uh, to do with a sanctioned individual. But there will be some people, and there will be, as you say, various loopholes uh, uh, available to them. Um, never underestimate the the. the the power of the of the enablers. Do we have any idea of how many now sanctioned Russians are still living in in the UK? Have they mainly moved to Dubai and Israel? It seems to be the other uh, kind of loophole within this this system within the kind of Western economic sphere. It's important to remember the role played by Dubai, which um, is obviously has been aiming to set itself up as an offshore financial centre for some time. Um, a lot of Russian money has clearly gone there. A lot of Russians have moved money there to buy property and so on. Um, I think that's something that's really worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, I mean, Israel's obviously a, a loophole for ethnically Jewish uh, Russian business people. So for a small number of them, that that does work, obviously, for sort of the Abramoviches and so on. But but I think most people probably would have just gone to Moscow. Um, you know, the the I, I, I suspect the, as Tom was saying, I suspect the sanctions came as a real shock. Um, you know, after 2014, there were some sanctions, but they were pretty limited. After, I mean, after the annexation of Crimea, um, I don't think anyone really would have anticipated such a comprehensive round of sanctions targeting, you know, not just sort of Kremlin officials, but real household name oligarchs like Abramovich or Deripaska. Um, you know, that's pretty extraordinary and unprecedented. So I suspect that that came as a real shock, and and, and they're still kind of slightly trying to restructure their lives. With all the aid money flooding into Ukraine and the and the military aid, do you think enough is being done to make sure that that money is ending up in the right place? You know, obviously, all these situations, some will will go missing. But do you think enough is being being done? Uh, I, I'm thinking of Bosnia, which has a very famous case of billions going missing um, in the in the aftermath of the war. Well, I mean, Ukraine had colossal governance issues, what you could call euphemistically governance issues, um, and obviously that won't have gone away. It's become, I think it's considered rather distasteful to talk about that now, and widely in political circles, people tend to talk about uh, President Zelensky's government administration as if it's sort of Denmark, rather than um, as if it's a you know an ex-Soviet state with substantial challenges um, going back decades. Um, you know, the structure of the Ukrainian economy was very much not the same as the structure of the Russian economy before the war, but definitely had its own homegrown um, and Russian-provoked corruption issues, which were incredibly deeply embedded and they'd really struggled to root out despite substantial efforts since the 2014 revolution. Um, I haven't seen any work on um, how much of the aid may be going astray. And like you, I'm concerned about the Bosnia parallel. I worry that we will wake up to this too late. Um, of course, quite a lot of the aid being sent is aid in kind. You know, you can't really embezzle, you know, a multiple rocket launch system or whatever that, you know, that is what it is. Um, but 
but I mean, in, in terms of if you if you, if the Americans are just or, or or whoever or the British or the Swedes are just sending a, a, some weaponry, there's not much you can do with it. But but in terms of yeah, financial aid, huge quantities is is flying is flowing to prop up the the Hryvnia and the Ukrainian economy more generally. And and obviously there'll be concerns that some of that will be going astray. And I, to be honest, I, I think it would be good to do more work on that now. Um, rather than pretend that it's distasteful to even ask the question, because let's face it, that's very much what's happened to Ukraine in the past, and it would be a, a real shame to see that repeating itself. You've both spent a, a lot of your careers kind of Cassandra-like warning warning, or speaking about the uh, dangers of, of kleptocracy and Russian money, and, and uh, now it seems the world has finally woken up to it. Were you shocked at the, the resilience and speed of the sanctions that have been put in place? And I'll start by asking Tom this. Well, it was, it was a very slow start, but it, was, it, it, it became in, in, impressive. And as uh, Oliver said, um, we, we weren't perhaps expecting the, 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 the breadth of these sanctions targeting some, some, some household uh, names. Um, but I think we have started from a very low base. Um, you know, was anybody really looking at this question uh, at all uh, to any extent before the, the, the Russian invasion? I, I think not. Um, and I think there is a danger in the future that, uh, you know, we mentioned you know, war fatigue. Um, the other kinds of fatigue as, as well, as we we're just talking about Russia today, as we know, there are billions of, of, uh, of, of pounds of other uh, corrupt capital in 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 London. Um, Kazakhstan is a country I know very well. Uh, in January, two hundred and twenty people were were, were shot dead uh, after a peaceful process uh, spiraled out of out of control. Um, we've not seen any sanctions on anybody in in in, in Kazakhstan, and I think there is a danger for whenever the war ends or or, or fades into a stalemate, we just go back to um, the, the the way we were. A lot of the sanctions will be lifted and we allow these oligarchs who have been practically funding the war or at least aiding uh, the Kremlin, uh, the assets return to them and they can be used uh, again in the uh, in the future. Uh, I think that is something we want to avoid, but there doesn't seem to be. There is, there is some talk about, well, can we can we can we move from um, you know, freeze to to, to seize? Um, but that is that is a topic which is which is, I think, only just starting and has very many legal difficulties uh, and it may just be that we go to to the way it was before unfortunately and uh, and the oligarchs get to to, to use their uh, corruptly earned uh, capital yeah, I, I agree with tom on on all of that i mean particularly the point that there's no real substantive difference between russian oligarchs and other oligarchs in terms of how they earn their fortunes um the reason that these people have been sanctioned is because they're Russian, not because they're oligarchs, and that alarms me. Um, you know, politicians love their announceables, and sanctions are the perfect announceables. You get to stand up and say, "Look at this this foreign foreign bully that we're taking on, and we've put their name on a list." But you know, I had quite a lot of conversations with law enforcement agencies and and, and policymakers in the immediate days and weeks after the invasion and was pretty amazed by just the general lack of knowledge about not just the individual oligarchs, but the whole structure of the Russian state and the way that the Russian economy operates. There clearly had been almost no work done on this before the invasion at all, which is extremely alarming considering, you know, the scale of the threat was widely known. I mean, admittedly, you know, Tom and Tom and me have been bleating on about this for ages, but but it's even entered into sort of mainstream politics with 
you know, you know, the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in Parliament and so on doing reports on this in recent years. So it's not just a few journalists and think tank people. It's been it's been you know more more wide than that. Um, and I I do worry that um, uh, in in recent months or certainly recent weeks, because of the you know the, the the breakdown in the Tory Party leadership and and the sort of and and then obviously the, the pressing concerns of the cost of living crisis that 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 we're just not going to have the, the 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 focus to do the really important work that will help move from you know from freezing to seizing you know this is extremely laborious resource intensive difficult legally taxing work that would take law enforcement agencies years to do um you know it it requires a political commitment to put resources in now when maybe there won't be a a, a payback for five or ten years. You know, the, the benefit might be accrued by a different party or a different prime minister. I see no sign that that anyone in politics is prepared to say we need to put the seed capital into the National Crime Agency now, in the recognition that that it will pay off, but it will, might not pay off for a decade. Um, you know, and and sadly, it, it's very easy to sanction people. This isn't just a British problem. This is the same in the EU and, and to a certain extent in the US. But it's very easy to sanction people, put people's names on a list, and, and show how tough we're being. It's very hard to do what actually needs to be done, which is to take this as a law enforcement problem and to look at, you know, for example, you know, who was behind the massacre in Kazakhstan? You know, who is any of that money here? Should that money be frozen? If it's frozen, should it be confiscated? How should it be confiscated? Um, you know, these these are really difficult, laborious questions that require expertise, linguistic expertise, you know, cooperation with 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 foreign jurisdictions. Really hard stuff to do, and it's so much easier to just. You know, stick Abramovich's name on a list and, and talk about how tough you're being. You know, and 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 that sadly has been a, a recurrent theme of British politics for a long time. And and though I did hope there were signs of that changing, because there was a lot of behind the scenes discussion about what policy needed changing and how to change Companies House and all this, I don't. I think that's dissipated, and it, it's going to be really hard to get that degree of energy back again. I couldn't agree more with Oliver and Tom's sentiments there. Even if corruption is everyone's fourth biggest priority, dig into any issue facing the world and corruption is an exacerbating factor. This is something that us in the West can have a direct impact on. If we care, our elected representatives have to care too. Next week is our final episode, where we'll be looking at the mammoth task of trying to rebuild Ukraine after this war is finished. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Oliver Bullough and Thomas May. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi from Ishwat Strategies. And thanks also to Nick Capeling at Chatham House.